Okay, if you've got a Bible, would you like to turn to the book of Luke, Luke's Gospel in the New Testament, and to chapter 15? If you don't have a Bible but would like to follow in a copy, then just raise a hand, and a couple of the girls will just bring one to you. Just keep it up until they spot you. And the scripture references will be on the screen as well there. There's one more hand right down the front. Fabulous. Now, in a few moments, we're going to start reading from verse 11 in Luke 15, but it'd be helpful just to say a bit about this chapter in general before we kick off. We're going to focus on the, the third of three parables or stories that Jesus told. And each of these three stories, we're just going to look at one of them, each of the three of them, um, Jesus is telling to explain something about the joy that God has when someone who is lost turns to him. So in the first, uh, there's a shepherd who rejoices when he finds a sheep that had gone astray. He leaves the 99 and he goes diligently searching for one that had got lost. In the second, uh, a woman is rejoicing that she found a coin that was lost. This coin obviously has no hope of being found by itself, so this woman has to search, again, very diligently to find a coin, and then she rejoices when she finds it. And it's the third that we're going to look at this morning, which is uh, the story of a father rejoicing when his lost son returns home. And each of those gives a, a different shade to explain the joy or the rejoicing that is going on uh, in heaven with God when any of us uh, come and turn to him. So let's read the passage and we'll take it from there. Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he dis divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. 
Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son... The father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This parable, then, is often referred to as the parable of the lost son, or the parable of the prodigal son, which is a bit harsh in some respects. It's kind of reminding the prodigal son of what he's done. It's kind of saying, you squandering, wasteful son. It's the parable of the squandering, wasteful son. But I believe, actually, homing in on this particular one of the three parables, we could see it, actually, as the parable of the loving father. That's what I believe Jesus was drawing attention to for his listeners there. That's what I believe God is wanting to remind and draw our attention to this morning, the love of a father, the father heart of God for everybody who turns to him. And so, however long you've known God, God wants to remind you of his father heart and of his compassion that is as deep and as profound as the love that this father demonstrates in the story that Jesus tells. Perhaps you don't know God like that in in that way at the moment. Perhaps you don't feel you relate to God as Father, and in which case this message from Jesus is an invitation to you to come and accept and come and draw near to the Father heart of God for you. This love of a Father that is for you. What we're going to do this morning is look at the three main characters and see what lessons kind of uh, come out Uh, from each one of these characters. There's the younger son, the prodigal who returns home. There's the father. And then we'll deal lastly with the older brother. So the story kicks off with a completely scandalous request. The younger son says to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. I want what's coming to me now. I want what's coming to me when you die. But I don't want to wait until you die. I want it now. And so in many respects, it's like a a veiled statement. Dad, actually, I wish that you were dead. I wish that you weren't around. I wish that I were free from the, the hassle of being in your household. That's in a sense... the the essence of his request. Now, apparently, it was not unusual for fathers, perhaps, I don't know, to avoid inheritance tax, to decide before they died to give some of their property to their children and, and divide it up. They would give the property then, but the father would still manage all all that those children then were given. And they would still, the father would still receive all the income from, um, from the property. So it's like, 
if your mum or dad gave you a house, you'd have a house, but until you sold it, you wouldn't actually be rich. You wouldn't actually have any more money in your pockets. It's amazing then that the father does grant the request and the younger son's intentions become apparent because rather than stick around and help his father to manage the property, he decides, I'm going to set up and I'm getting out of here. I want to get free from this. So we see then his son sets out on a journey. That journey begins by feeling like complete freedom. He's got money to burn in his back pocket. He's no longer got the responsibilities associated with being in his father's household, looking after the farm. He's completely free. But as the story unfolds, that freedom meets with reality, and reality shows that what he thought was freedom was actually folly, and he becomes absolutely miserable. So a life independent of God will begin by feeling like freedom, but will never satisfy. It would be like skydiving without a parachute. To begin with, it must feel pretty exhilarating, until the point that you realize the ground is approaching quite fast. Um, and so that's what happens to the younger son. Inevitably, with no money coming in, as he's spending it, uh, it's going to run out, and in, that's what happens. But he kind of gets hit by a double whammy. There's his own stupidity, which was just spending all of this money, not having any coming in. But also, he's met by a famine that he couldn't control, and that kind of compounds his situation and makes it even worse. So, no money plus famine, this guy is desperate. So desperate that he goes and attaches himself to a citizen of the far distant country he's gone off to visit. And uh, his job then involves feeding pigs. Now, if you were Jewish, if we were Jewish, we would know for definite that anything to do with pigs would be absolutely horrendous. It would be like worse than being in charge of cleaning the toilets at New Day or North when we all go on these camps and, uh, and encounter wonderful facilities. Um, it would be worse than that because for a Jew, a pig was something that was totally unclean. To touch a pig, to be near a pig, was to risk being unclean before God when even members of your own family wouldn't come near you until you had got yourself ceremonially clean. This guy is feeding the pigs. He's spending time with the pigs, and he's so starving and desperate, he even wants to eat the food that the pigs were eating. To say this is like the lowest of the low situation this guy could reach would be an understatement. So for us, for any of us, sin has a habit of growing if it's not turned away from. We can, we can begin by feeling like we're in control and we're just making a decision to, uh, to do something that maybe God wouldn't approve of particularly, but actually no one else is going to know. No one else will find out. God will know, but his grace and so on, so we'll just go with it. And then before we know it, things are out of our hands. Things are out of our control and we realize actually we are stupid. <laughs> that is the nature of sin. Sin doesn't just want to be your friend, it wants to dominate and ruin your life. 
This situation then brings the lost son to his senses, or he, he comes to himself. He comes to realize things. He comes to see reality for what it truly is. And he begins by recalling his father's generosity, even just to the hired hands who worked on his farm. They're not in lack or need at all. And so he realizes in a way that he's really given up a good thing. By moving away from his father, he's, he's made a silly decision because of all that he had right there with his father. Now, it might seem that his decision to start with is not particularly uh, lofty. It doesn't necessarily reflect on him very well. Maybe he's just thinking of self-preservation. I need to eat. I know what. I'll go back to my dad. But he does recognize that he has hurt his father. He's sinned against heaven and against his dad. And now that money's run out, he's starving and lonely. No one nearby cares for him. He comes to his senses and he's truly humbled and he even prepares a speech to go back to his father. He sees the issue. He sees that he's been wasteful. He sees that he's hurt his father. He understands. And so in humility, he makes that decision to turn back to God. Let's look then at the father and the father's amazing, remarkable reaction to all of this. There are several features of this story that kind of just shed light on how tremendous and powerful is the love that this father has for the son who deserted. The first is this, the father's on the lookout. The father sees him while he was still a long way off. The father, the famine hasn't touched his farm, everything's in order, and so he's looking and he's, he's keeping an eye out, he's searching, as it were, he's waiting, he's hoping, he's, he's not giving up hope that his son will return. That's like what God is like with us. Never giving up hope that prodigals will return to him. This father, it says, is filled with compassion. He saw his son and was filled with compassion. That's how Paul understands God to be. He begins the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 1 by saying, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all compassion. So imagine losing the person that you love the most and that's it. You don't know where they are. You don't actually know if they're alive or dead. They're just completely lost to you the person that you love the most. Years pass, and you know nothing, and you hear nothing. And then imagine seeing them coming towards you. Magnify that by infinity, really, and we get something of the flavor of this Father's love. We get something of the flavor of God's love for us, his compassion. So he's on the lookout He's filled with compassion, and he runs to his son. I mean, we could cut to just a few verses further on. Basically, this father accepts the son back, but there are loads of ways in which you could accept the son back. You could accept him with arms folded, waiting at the front door 
waiting him to make his sorry journey back to you and say sorry, and then start dealing with the, the conditions that he has to keep to come under your roof again. What this father does is run to his son. A middle-aged father, a wealthy landowner, owns a farm, got lots of servants, could have sent a messenger, could have sent someone else, goes himself. Not only that, but he's in the Middle East. And by my reckoning, I'm guessing it would be quite hot. So to run anywhere would really be an indication you've thrown off all decorum, all kind of social keeping up appearances, what will other people think. No, all of that is out of the window. The father is running because he's seen his son. That again shows the remarkable reaction of this father and his incredible love. He embraces, when he meets the son, he embraces and kisses his son who, remember, at this point, is at his very worst. He's not eaten for ages. He's starving. He's wasted away. He's dirty. We find out that he's barefoot because his father gives him sandals. And he's been spending time with pigs who are ceremonially unclean. The father ran to him, but didn't just say, stay there until you get clean. Come with me, stay at arm's distance. Just throws his arm around him and gives him a massive embrace and kisses him. And again, this is like what God the Father is like with us. So at the very point where we realize, and maybe even for the first time, oh God, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against heaven, I'm not worthy to be called your son. This shows the Father's love, that he runs to us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were objects of his wrath. There was nothing clean or good about us. The Father runs to us and throws his arms around us. And again, it doesn't even stop there. The the Son gives his prepared speech. But you might notice that he doesn't complete the, the speech He doesn't get to the point where he's able to say, make me like one of your hired men. I think that's because the father just interrupts. And actually his father doesn't speak to him first. He says to a servant, quick, go and get the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. Let's have a celebration. There are loads of gifts there that are given a robe he's distinguished again a ring it's like he belongs to the family again so he's got a ring which kind of denotes authority he's back in the family and he's a son he's not a slave anymore so he's given sandals to wear slaves were barefoot sons had sandals on their feet he's a son he gets sandals the fattened calf something that was saved up for only a special occasion something pretty remarkable, there's a celebration. All of those things communicate the complete acceptance that this son receives from his father. And that's the same for any of us. To all who receive the Lord Jesus are given the right 
to be a child of God. So what explains this remarkable reaction of the father is his lavish and indestructible love. And the apostles, when they're writing the New Testament, they understand it. They understand the nature of the father's mighty love. So in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, John writes there, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Or in another translation, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. He's absolutely stoked by it. Now sometimes, and understandably, we, um, we can sing, we can pray, we can focus on the incredible love of Jesus that took him to the cross. And it would be bizarre if we didn't focus on that. But sometimes we can edit out of our thinking the fact that we've got a heavenly Father who loves us. That God, the Father, has incredible and indestructible love. This is how God relates to us. This is how, we, this is how He sees us. It's God's reaction when we first repent of our sins and come to Him. In James 4 verse 8, it says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Just imagine how that son was drawing near to God. Just repentance. Also, perhaps slightly tentative. I'm going to go back. I'm not quite sure what reception I'm going to get. I'm unworthy. That's the kind of tentative drawing near that this son does. But the drawing near that God does is the drawing near that we see in this parable that's on the lookout, that's filled with compassion, that runs to meet his son, that embraces and kisses him, that gives gifts and starts a party. That is the drawing near of God. And if you've never known, or if you don't know God as your father, you've never truly understood what it means that Jesus died on the cross for you, for your sins, you've never come to him in that way, you need to know that that is the way that God will receive you when you decide to come to him. And for the rest of us, this says something to us about the way that God sees us whenever we come to him. We come to him as a child comes to a father, not as a colleague goes to a line manager or a servant goes to a master. We come to God as a, fa- as a child comes to a father And when we come to him, God comes to us as a father comes to a son. Now, we might have uh, a problem at this point, this talk of fatherhood and being his child. Because in society at large, and then perhaps in your experience in particular, you have become aware of models of fatherhood on the earth that really don't match up to this description of fatherhood in the Bible. So we're then trying to understand our relationship to God as father when our understanding of fatherhood is tainted by what we've experienced in the world. Let me give you a few examples of unhelpful examples of fatherhood in the world. Some are just mildly unhelpful. Some are downright problematic. In the world, there are a great number of Competitive dads. That's one model of fatherhood. The kind of dad who um, 
to make sure that he can still beat his seven-year-old son playing football, ends up breaking his leg. True story. (laughs) The competitive dad, the competitive dad who has a midlife crisis the day his son or daughter can run faster than him or maybe earn more money than him. Um, Fun, but does that model help us particularly engage with God? It's maybe a bit humorous, but not especially. The embarrassing dad. Why is it that none of us ever, ever want to see our dad on the dance floor? I don't know. But it's true. It's like, dad, people are watching. Other people are here. Stop this foolishness. I don't want to be associated with you. And so sometimes, maybe when we're growing up, we can have that understanding of our dad. He's just not really someone to hang out with. And so then I'm saying, God's your father. You're thinking, well, my dad's just embarrassing. (laughs) Why would I want to hang out with him? And so our experiences can cloud the issue. Our experiences can not help us uh, understand God. uh, Another model of fatherhood would be the inept dad or the silly dad. The silly dad is the subject of a lot of children's programs and uh, and cartoons where there'll be a family scene. The father, I think, is a slightly rotund, cuddly figure who doesn't really achieve much important. And so he is just silly daddy. And if you really want something to get done, if you really want to... uh, see some progress in the home, you'll speak to the 10-year-old daughter or the family dog who's really got it up and together. The dad, well, he's just silly. And uh, we laugh, but that is how society, in some ways, will see fatherhood, will see dads. That's just, it's just, they're just silly. There are more uh, hurtful examples of fatherhood. There's the workaholic father, who is interested in you if you have achieved well in your latest exams, but will pour scorn if you haven't done well. He's a workaholic dad, so he gets a sense of worth by by working late hours, and so the workaholic dad might be quite closely related to the absentee dad, who just simply isn't around. You don't see him. He's not about. He's distant. He's off working, or he's decided to leave the family altogether because he's come up with something more exciting, and he just wants to live a carefree existence himself. Now, I suggest those are more serious examples of fatherhood that's gone wrong in the world. And lastly, abusive dads, abusive fatherhood, where there's evidence of violence and hurt and the worst kind of treatment. So all of that contains our thinking, but Jesus is here teaching us about the kind of father that God is. No human earthly model explains God the Father. This parable, this story that Jesus was telling, it wasn't as though Jesus, I don't think, observed a father do this and said, oh, that gives me an idea. I think I'll use that illustration. There was no father on earth who would do this. There was no self-respecting father at this time in that culture who would do what this father had done. So it was like Jesus was saying, here's something you can relate to, a father and his child. It's, 
then made to be completely transformed. It's not, well, my dad's like this. Maybe that's what God's like. No, it's see what kind of love God the Father lavishes on us. This has massive implications for our prayer life. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray like this, our Father in heaven. That's where the prayer starts. Was Jesus just picking a random expression? He could choose any number of names. We were saying earlier on, name of bubble names. There were loads of names that Jesus could have said. Yeah, begin your prayer like this. O most holy God, righteous and pure judge, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. He could have chosen any of those, but he said, no, pray like this. Our Father in heaven. Because he wanted to understand right at the heart of our relationship with God, right at the heart of our prayer life, when we just talk with him, is the understanding that he's a father and we're his child. Not then just rattling off kind of to-do lists and so on. No, we're relating to him as a child relates to a father. And when we don't get that, and when that whole concept just gets tainted in our minds, prayer will inevitably become a grind. Worship will become a grind. Because we're just thinking of all the things we haven't yet managed to pray for. We're just thinking, oh, maybe he's a boss who's then displeased with my performance. So we must come to God and understand our relationship with him as heavenly dad, as heavenly father. There's intimacy there. We know just wherever we are, whenever we are, we can speak with him. There is reverence and respect as well. In Ephesians 3, we get a glimpse of Paul's prayer life. When he writes in Ephesians 3, verse 14, he says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family on heaven, in heaven and on earth derives its name. For this reason I kneel before my Father. It's personal. It's intimate. It's also reverent. Because he's kneeling. It's also respectful because he's kneeling. But Paul understands that he's coming not to his cosmic boss. He's coming to his heavenly dad. And so it has massive implications for our prayer life that we need to get hold of. Let's look thirdly at the older brother. The story is this lovely wonderful, powerful demonstration of love. This celebration is kicking off and then it suddenly kind of gets interrupted by the older brother's reaction. He became angry. He refused to join the celebration. He's been with his father all the time and here comes this upstart younger brother back into the family just thinking everything can just be like it was. And so, we can perhaps readily identify and want to associate ourselves with the younger brother, the younger brother who's on the receiving end of such mercy, but sometimes perhaps we are also reacting and feeling like the older brother in different situations. And if we're honest, sometimes we can ask ourselves the question as we're reading through this, has the older brother actually got a point? And because, you know, we're good Christians... We know what the right answer is. 
we know that the older brother doesn't have a point. The older brother is mistaken. But read the story. Put yourself in it. Sometimes we can think, surely he's, he's got something there. Surely the father is going over the top. Surely God shouldn't treat sinners like that. That's, grace needs to be measured out with some kind of anger, surely. And we can think, has the older brother got a point? To understand why the older brother is completely missing the point, we need just to consider the beginning of Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. It says this. This is setting the scene for all the three parables that then follow. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him, to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now just take their statement for a moment. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's entirely true. Jesus was welcoming sinners, tax collectors, I always want to say taxpayers, tax collectors, he's just welcoming them. He's not only just receiving them, he's going out on the lookout. Jesus is the man who sees Zacchaeus up a tree and doesn't just leave him there. Jesus goes and seeks him out and says, I want to eat with you. Come down. Jesus is on the lookout for messed up people. He's on the lookout for prodigal sons and he wants to bring them back to the love of a father. The Pharisees are muttering. The Pharisees are missing the point. They resented the fact that other people were finding forgiveness and enjoying God. Now, there were people who had deliberately chosen to go astray from God and his law. Now, the Pharisees are seeing those same people following Jesus, and they seem to be enjoying it. For the Pharisees, it wasn't a case of enjoying your relationship with God. It was a case of doing the right thing. The only enjoyment they got was the smug feeling of thinking they were better than other people. And so here are the Pharisees. All this time, they've been keeping the law, doing what they were told, trying to honor God outwardly, but not actually enjoying a relationship with him as father for themselves. Now, fast forward back to the older brother. Sounds remarkably similar. Muttering. Maybe this is an older brother who has been obedient to his father's face, but seething on the inside. The older brother says to his father, I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. What does that suggest? He doesn't understand himself what it is to be his father's son. He's seeing himself actually as a slave who needs to just obey orders. Maybe even he's just secretly envying the younger brother's former lifestyle. He's too proud and conceited to go that direction himself because of what other people would think. But inwardly, secretly, maybe, that's what he wants to do. Someone, his younger brother, has gone and done all that stuff that he wants to do and has now come back and experienced forgiveness. That is, for this guy, a recipe for resentment. And so when Jesus is telling this parable, he is addressing a culture of resentment. And I think there's a number of characteristics 
to a culture of resentment. Where there is a culture of resentment, God's love doesn't seem that great. And hence, there's little rejoicing. In a culture of resentment, people are mostly or only aware of their duties. Prayer is guilt-ridden. It is an official appointment to get through so that you can tell yourself, we can tell ourselves afterwards, well, at least I've done it. It's guilt-ridden. There's a relationship with God, but it's a business relationship. It's a relationship that's characterized by having a to-do list. Keeping the rules. In a culture of resentment, people don't regard each other as brothers. See how the older son can't even refer to his brother as brother. He says to his father, this son of yours, just pushes him away. Well, he might be your son, but I've got nothing to do with him. I'm disowning him. Not happy to regard other people as brothers. And also, perhaps, more interested in what's going on outside the family. He says, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Father, I don't want to spend time with you. I want to go be with my friends. And so sometimes where there is a culture of resentment, we don't like other Christians. We don't want to spend time with them. We want to go elsewhere. We want to go where the real party is or the real action is. In a culture of resentment, um, people who have messed up their lives are irritating to us. In fact, in a culture of resentment, I think there is a preference that messed up people stay messed up because that helps us feel and look outwardly better. And perhaps in this kind of culture, there's also a desire for smallness. We want to keep things small. Actually, don't want the family to grow. Things are just right as they are. Let's keep things pure. Let's keep things tidy. Let's keep things straightforward. Church life should be predictable, not messy. Change should be avoided or resisted. And finally, in a culture of resentment, there is always a feeling of lack of recognition from others. The older brother is always feeling that he's not quite getting treated as he deserves. And he's bitter about it. And so we we need to ask the question, do we identify with the lost son, with the younger son who's gone away? Are there respects in which we need to come back to God the Father and recognize who he is and his wonderful grace and kind of leave old lifestyle behind? It's also the question, do we identify with the older brother who has allowed resentment to creep in? If so, the issue isn't to do with the errors of the younger brother at all. Instead, the chances are you have forgotten the father heart of God for you. You've forgotten the way in which God, the father, views you. You've forgotten or lost sight of the intimacy in which God intends a relationship with him to involve. Here's how the father demonstrates Again, this wonderful, loving heart to his older son. We notice that he is tender with both of them. He goes to both of them in person. We see that in verse 20. 
with the younger son, but we see it in verse 28 with the older son. He doesn't just send a messenger out. He goes to his, uh, his son in person. He doesn't command his son. He doesn't say, you must come and join this party. Again, the older brother is viewing his father as someone who's always just giving orders. But at this point, the father's going to him and just pleading, come on, come into the party. Don't just stay outside. He's, he's pleading. He calls him, my son. He's just reminding this older, older son, this older brother, who he is. Well, you're not a slave either. You're my son. You are always with me. And lastly, he says, everything I have is yours. Right at the beginning of the story, the father had divided up his property between his two sons. The younger son sold it all. So everything the father has was given to that older son. So the older son is complaining, you've never even given me a young goat. Again, he's kind of missing the point. It all belonged to him anyway, really. What was to stop him just going having a good time with a goat? Um, killing it and, uh, and having a feast with his friends. He was totally missing the point. Now, tantalizingly, the end of the story is left unresolved. We're left with these kind of questions. How did the older son actually react to his father's generous spirit? Did he say, did he stay sulking outside of the party? Did he never reconcile with his brother? And did he become increasingly alienated from his own dad? Option number one. Option number two, did he come to his senses himself? His younger brother had a time when he came to his senses. Does the older brother come to his senses as well? Join in the party, throw off his resentment, and take on the same mindset as his dad. Let's celebrate. Let's see this family grow. Let's have a party because someone who was lost is now found. Let's throw wide our embrace to people that for so long have been alienated from God and now they're coming in to know him. It's also left unresolved for the younger son. How did the younger son adapt to living with his father again? Did he continue to take advantage and cause hurt? Did he run off again and get into even worse trouble still wanting to live an independent life completely free from any outside input. We know that God's heart is this loving, tender heart towards a child, but we also know from the scripture that because of that same tender, loving heart, God will bring correction into our lives. God will bring discipline. God will say, no, that's not going to be helpful if you head down that track. And so uh, maybe the younger son was happy to take the party, but then still live completely irresponsibly and go and blow it all again. Or, option number two, did he go on to truly grasp the privilege and joy of being in his father's household and discover what it means to have his identity rooted in the fact that he is a child of his father. Does he feel encouraged and affirmed when his father then asks him to take responsibility for certain areas of activity in his household? Son, I just think it would be great 
if you get involved in this, I think you should head up that. I think it would be great if you can take responsibility for this area. Or does he just want a carefree life? Does he see that as something that is encouraging, affirming? My God wants to involve me in his kingdom. Or does he just want to sack it? By leaving the story open, Jesus is graciously inviting all tax collectors and sinners to return to God and build a fulfilling life with God at the centre. But Jesus is also tenderly pleading with the older brothers to throw away self-righteousness and resentment and join the Father's celebration. Who do you identify with? Do you identify with either of those reactions? Is there a circumstance in which you know you just need to turn to God? Is it just a sense that you've not necessarily drifted into grave pig-feeding sin, but you've just lost sight of the fact that you approach God as Father and that your relationship with Him is to be something that is intimate and enjoyed. Maybe just the edge has been taken off prayer life. Or do you identify with the older son, the older brother, who is angry, who's irritated, the older brother who's just getting overlooked and is feeling like a slave. For both, the solution is the wonderful, tender love of God and coming to that love again and afresh. Let's pray and worship God.